Well, good morning. We're continuing our study of soteriology, that is the study of salvation here in Equipping Hour. This is part three of uh, five for now, and then Equipping Hour will be interrupted by Omri. And uh, next week, I'll give a little teaser for uh, Omri's series that he'll be doing. But this is part three, uh, for now, of five on soteriology and the study of salvation. And we were talking about salvation last week being something like a multifaceted diamond. And um, put on the spot, I got stumped over how many facets a diamond has. So I'm just going to bring you up to speed. The gold standard for numbers of facets on a diamond is 58. You may have gone home and looked that up yourself. Um, That is kind of the norm that for the average diamond, that is the number of facets that brings together the most light reflected in the best ways to get the best sparkle. There are other options, however. If you have a diamond with flaws in it, the more cuts, uh, the better you can hide the flaws. Some princess diamonds have 144. Well, I could be getting myself in trouble here. If the ladies here start looking at the rock and saying, why does mine have 144 cuts in it? Is this a flawed diamond? I don't know. I I just realized I could be getting some men in trouble. But some princess diamonds have 144 carats in order to hide things inside the stone. A radiant cut has 70. Uh, The Asher cut has 57. A trillion cut is 50 facets on a diamond. The Ashoka cut... 62 facets, and the Ashoka cut is only used for absolutely flawless diamonds because everything is seen, but the number of cuts maximizes brilliance. So if you're one of those lucky ladies with an Ashoka cut diamond on your ringer, on your ringer, ring (laughs) finger, then uh, somebody knew what he was doing. All that to say, what are the points of all of the facets, many different sides of a diamond, but all contributing to one brilliant shine? When we think about the doctrine of soteriology, we look at it from a number of angles. We we open our Bibles and we find many different ways of thinking about salvation, many similes, many metaphors, many pictures, many Old Testament narratives that contribute to the grand scheme of what God is painting and how He saves sinners. And this morning, what we're going to be doing, and I teased this out last week a little bit, we are going to read the dictionary. Uh, Some of you may have been like me and picked up dictionaries as a kid and just thought, this is fun, and you go from one word to the next and you just read them. Some of you own dictionaries so that when somebody says a word you don't know, you run home and look it up. Others of you despise the dictionary. I don't know where you fall on that spectrum. We'll try to keep this a little bit interesting. Um... I think all of this is interesting because the words we are looking at are our hope. They are our confidence. And these are some of the facets that Scripture gives us to let the beauty and the elegance and the radiance of God's plan of salvation for sinners shine forth. And guess what? One word couldn't cover it. So we're going to look at the vocabulary of salvation this morning. Uh, We're going to walk through something of a soteriological dictionary, not of the theological words that describe salvation, but of the words the Bible itself uses to describe salvation. There are many words that describe salvation we won't use that are appropriate, they're theological constructions and they're accurate, but this morning we're just going to look at the English versions of words used to describe salvation. I'm indebted, by the way, to uh, Leon Morris's book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, uh, where he just walks through many of these words. If you want a fuller treatment of that and more technical treatment of that, I would commend 
that book to you. So let's just jump in at the top of the alphabet here. And these are not in any logical order. <clears throat> They're not in chronological order. So don't develop a what came first in salvation kind of thing from this list. These are merely English alphabetical order. And we'll jump in at the word adoption. Adoption. By the way, the notes on the website have all of the references here. Um, you've got the references up there on the screen. If you can squint and see those, you don't have to write them down. I've got them for you in the notes on the website. Um, if you want to put your finger in Ephesians and in Romans, we'll spend some time there because those letters so densely use so many of these words will be in there a lot. And if you want a really fun exercise of flipping back and forth in your Bible, you can keep up and we'll just be turning to a lot of places. Adoption. Adoption simply means that believers are brought into God's family. They are made heirs of salvation and they are given the rights and privileges in keeping with being sons and daughters of God. And what's implied in the doctrine of adoption is that you were born in the wrong family. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3 when God spoke to the snake in promising salvation? We looked at that last week, and he said to the snake, the woman's seed will crush your seed. There will be enmity between your seed and her seed. Well, what is the seed of the snake? I mean, it, really, if the snake is, is Satan incarnate in the Garden of Eden, in what sense could it possibly be said that Satan has children? I mean, he's an angelic being and they don't reproduce, right? If you trace out the vocabulary of the seed of the snake through Scripture, you find some interesting things. Uh, you find a really interesting scene in Genesis 6 we won't get into now, um, where I believe Satan is trying to interfere with the seed line and the seed promise of Genesis 3.15. But you also see descriptions of humanity called seed of the snake. Descriptions of Judas, for instance, or the hypocritical religious leaders in Jesus' day, brood of vipers, right? Snake babies. And at one point, Jesus said, everybody that's an unbeliever is a child of Satan, and the Apostle John in his letter, 1 John, affirms the same thing. We, it is obvious who the children of the devil are. Does the devil have children? Yes. Every single person born under depravity, born in sin. <laughs> and the implication by adoption is you were born in the family that is hopeless and helpless and spiritually dead. You need to be adopted. And what an immense privilege it is for us who have no business owning God's name to be brought into his family. Adoption is a sweet, sweet doctrine. Ephesians 1.5, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. God did not choose us for adoption because we were lovely or he was lonely, <laughs> but simply for the kind intention of his will to put his own love on display, his love for the unlovely. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting. That is not Romans 8. It's a really good verse, not what we're looking for. Uh, Romans 8, 15. For we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, tender affectionate words for God as Daddy. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. What a remarkable facet, the beautiful diamond of salvation, that we are adopted, made heirs of God's eternal riches. Next in our list is the word atonement. In the early 1500s, the word atonement was an invented word, and it was an invented word combining two ideas, at one, atonement. If you, if you look at the spelling, you can still see that in the word, at one meant. Now, we may have lost the etymological, historical flavor of that word, but at its root, the idea was to bring two parties who were at disparity and make them one. And so now, in more modern usage, it has a maybe more nuanced flavor of reconciliation. You still feel that same idea of atonement in the word atonement. And atonement uh, captures uh, a couple of ideas. In Leviticus 17:11, atonement is the word used for that bloody sacrifice where an innocent animal was killed in the place of sinners in order to make atonement to bring sinners into a reconciled relationship with a holy God. In the New Testament, uh, this word conveys the same idea. It captures the hilasterion word group, and, and it's, um, I use the word atonement here even though in the New American Standard, that word in Romans 3.25 is translated as propitiation. We'll define that word a little bit later. But in many of your English Bibles, it is translated atonement, so we've included it here in the list. And the idea fundamentally is that two parties were at odds with one another, and they've been made at one by some process. And we'll detail that process under propitiation. By the way, this is the word that is used often when we talk about what is the extent of the atonement, the question, for whom did Christ die? Um, and so you hear the word atonement in that context. We'll cover that in a later lecture. Third on the list is the word calling, calling. This is God's drawing a sinner to repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. To say you have been called, you are called of God. We mean by that technically the effectual calling of a sinner unto faith and repentance. This is the work of God of drawing one to faith. There is in Scripture a universal call, Many are called, few are chosen. Uh, the universal call, I believe, shows up two times in the New Testament. Every other use of the word calling is this more technical theological sense of God's actively, supernaturally drawing sinners to Himself in faith. Let's look at just a couple of examples. Romans 8, 30. And this falls right in the, the great chain of soteriological events that begins before time. We'll look at verse 29 to begin with. For those whom God foreknew, that is a, not a God knew ahead of time who would exist, but really foreloved. God set his affections in relational knowledge on people before they were born. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And these whom he predestined, verse 30, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the unbreakable chain of salvation. Nobody falls through the cracks. And so when you see called in verse 30, the group called is the same group of people that are foreknown, predestined to look like Jesus, and are also justified and glorified. 
So called here clearly means the effectual call of God on a believer unto salvation. It is effective. God draws and people come. You remember John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Calling in the New Testament is that drawing. <clears throat> Next we have conversion. Conversion is the change of inclination and nature wrought by God in the repenting sinner. Turn to Acts 15.3 or just listen to it. Acts 15.3, therefore being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And there the, the disciples are giving report of Gentiles being converted. We talk about a convert. That is someone who has experienced a radical change. Uh, they have experienced a, a transition, a, a change of inclination and a change of nature brought about by God. And that change of inclination and nature is obvious to those who see from the outside. Uh, conversion has taken place. Next, we come to the word election. Election. Uh, I, I grew up believing in election. I was taught the doctrine of election, and it went something like this. Um, salvation is like an election. God votes for you, Satan votes against you, and you cast the deciding vote. It's an election. <laughs> um, that is not the biblical definition of the word election. We're not talking about uh, popularity contests or uh, political voting. Uh, look at the doctrine of election or, or the word election in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. This is where we get the word for election. Paul goes on and says, I, I do all things for the sake of the elect. There's the noun form of the word election. The elect are those who have been elected by God in this process of election. This is what God has done from before time, before we existed, before we did good or bad. Listen to Romans 8.33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Again, there's the noun form, those who have been chosen of God. And, and we just saw in Romans 8, 28 to 30, that there is this unbreakable chain of those whom God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. They are the elect. And the really humbling reality about the doctrine of election is that we did nothing to merit God's favor. As Paul unfolds in the next few chapters of Romans this brings everybody low before God. There is nothing inherent in the sinner that makes the sinner attractive to God. There is something in the purpose of God before time began to put His glory on display by saving undeserving sinners. And the doctrine of election really gets at the heart of grace, God's unmerited favor. God's election precedes our activities. It precedes anything we could merit. Next, we come to expiation. Expiation is the removal of sin and guilt. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26. 
Jesus was a high priest who brings sacrifice one time, unlike the earthly priests who did year by year. Verse 26, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Expiation is the putting away of sin. You remember the scapegoat that was sent away in the wilderness in Leviticus. The sins were placed on the scapegoat, as it were, and the goat went out in the wilderness as a visible sign to take the sins of the people away from them. Expiation is the removal of sin and the removal of guilt that goes with sin. Faith. Faith is simply trust, and trust particularly in salvation, in the finished work of Christ. Faith is a gift. Faith includes the intellect, the affections, and the volition. It is something God Himself provides, and it works through the will and the affections of the believer. A believer is one who has faith. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9. This is familiar territory. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Grace saves, the agency is faith, and that faith is not of yourselves, or the grace through faith complex of salvation is not of yourselves. It is a gift, the gift of God. No one who is spiritually dead could produce saving faith. Saving faith is produced by God. It is a gift from Him. But saving faith doesn't go around your will. It doesn't work around your emotions. It doesn't work around your decision-making. Some people who have come to grips with the doctrine of election, with the fact that God foreloved, foreknew, predestined, and chose before time people who would believe in Him, When asked, did you decide to follow Jesus? Or did you want to follow Christ when you became a Christian? And sometimes people are tempted to think, okay, election, predestination, God chose. Um, No. I was unable, unwilling, and spiritually dead. Therefore, I did not choose Christ. I did not place my faith in Christ. God placed my faith. How How does that work? And the reality is, saving faith does not go around your desires. But when God gives the gift of faith, He changes them. It doesn't go around your will. God's supernatural work in effectual calling changes your will so that you do place your faith in Christ. God gets all of the glory, and yet we are involved in that because God has made us alive and made us to be involved in that process. Next on the list is glorification. And by this we mean the final and irreversible conformity to the image of Christ that takes place for believers upon their entrance into Christ's presence. Now we'll subdivide that out a little bit in a moment. But you can tell we're already ahead, right? We're in alphabetical order, not chronological order. We're talking about what happens to you when you step out of this earth, step out of this existence, step out of this physicality into God's glorious presence. And we can speak loosely of glorification as that which happens to the believer immediately when you die. 
However, there is a glorification proper that awaits the resurrection. You understand that Paul, the apostle, does not yet have his resurrection body. Those whom we know and love who have departed to be with Christ, they are absent from the body and present with the Lord. There is a glorification properly spoken of in Scripture that awaits that resurrection. And yet, it is also appropriate to say that believers who are absent from the body present with the Lord are present with Him in glory. So, sometimes we'll speak loosely of um, glorification just being entrance into heaven, but probably more properly, um, we reserve that for the resurrection still to come. But listen again to Romans 8.30. This is a remarkable grammatical statement. Remember that unbreakable chain of salvation, God foreknew, predestined, called, foreknown, predestined, or before time, called is in time, justification is in time, and everyone He justified, He also glorified. Notice glorified in Romans 8 is a future tense verb. I mean, sorry, it's a past tense verb to describe a future reality. What is going on there? Is this terrible grammar? (laughs) No, I believe what Paul is saying is this is so certain and so unbreakable a chain of events that it can be spoken of as in the past. It is a certitude, a really remarkable statement. 1 Corinthians 15, the long section there on the resurrection gives details of what our physicality and spirituality reunited will be like at the resurrection. But look down at verse 42. So also the resurrection of the dead, the body is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown natural, raised supernatural or spiritual. And that is to say our future residence in eternity after the resurrection will not be some ethereal, non-physical, wispy existence, but a super-physical, spiritual existence. That is what we have to look forward to, and it's a guarantee in God's grace for all who have believed. Let's think about the word grace for just a moment. Grace is simply getting what you don't deserve. It is the unmerited favor of God. God should not look upon us with a desire to dispense gifts. And yet He gives and gives and gives and gives. That's grace. Some have taken the English word grace and made an acronym. Have you heard this before? God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay, that's not a technical definition because there are elements of God's grace that go outside of soteriology, and yet it is a great way to think about what it means to be saved by God's grace. God's riches freely given to us at great cost to Himself at Christ's expense. God is free in His authority to dispense grace Grace is free to us in that God says, come to me and get riches without cost, Isaiah 55. And yet grace is not free in the sense of there's a free lunch. It costs somebody something. It costs Christ everything. 
Grace is extremely costly, and yet it is free to us. Titus 3.7 talks about God's grace this way. 3.7. Is that really what I'm looking for? I'm going to start in verse 4. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. A lot of our vocabulary was in those three verses. But all of this... Kindness from God and salvation comes by His free favor, unmerited, unearned, unobligated. You remember Romans 4, we talked about that last week. When someone shows up for work, they punch in their punch card and they get what they earned. And if salvation was about getting what you earned, you did enough uh, good things to outweigh your bad things, if such a thing were possible, it's not possible. or if somehow you could do enough to meet some made-up standard, you would only be getting what you earned and you would be obligating some deity to reward you. That's not grace, that's not love, that's just ought. And the only ought that we could have from a holy God given our sinfulness is the ought of judgment. Grace is we get so much and we don't deserve any of it. It's truly said, if a Christian received nothing from God in terms of kindness after salvation in this life, he would have everything. And we so often put God in the obligation zone when we think we've done something, merited some favor from him. Look, you've had your sins forgiven. What other need do you have? Forgiven sins qualify you to be in God's glorious presence forever and ever. You remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we have been saved by grace through faith. Next word on our list is imputation. Imputation simply means it's an accounting term of crediting one thing to another account. Imputation means that God credits to believing sinners the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's positive imputation. We are credited with Christ's righteousness. And then negative imputation means God credits to Jesus at the cross all the unrighteousness of every believer. That is, when Jesus went to the cross, the past, present, future sins of everyone who believes in Christ were placed by the Father on Christ so that He was clothed in them, wrapped in them. He was truly the sin-bearer, took those on Himself to the cross, never having committed those sins, but as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin on our behalf. That's negative imputation so that we might become, positive imputation, the righteousness of God in Him. This goes back to the very reason for the gospel and why the the work of Christ at the cross is good news. Think back to Romans 1.16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
Why is he not ashamed of it? Because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is manifested. What's the implication? We needed a righteousness not of our own. We needed an alien righteousness. We needed desperately God's righteousness. God's righteousness is the standard for entrance into heaven, and unless God gives it to us, we will never have it. Positive imputation means God in the gospel gives us his righteousness. Paul says in Philippians 3, a righteousness not of my own, done by keeping the law, but the righteousness of God that comes by faith through Christ. We desperately need positive imputation, and we desperately need negative imputation. Our sins placed on Christ, Christ's righteousness given to us. Because of imputation, it can rightly be said, God looks at the believer as if he's never done anything wrong, and as if he has always done everything right. Again, this is an accounting term. This is not the actual reality of things. I'm a sinner, and I have sinned, and I will sin. And yet God, in His accounting, by His grace, imputes His own righteousness to me and has imputed my sins, past, present, and future, to the account of His Son and punished His Son for them instead. Justification. Justification is the declaration of something to be right, something to be just. And there are places in Scripture where justification is not used in terms of man's being declared right before a holy God, but think, for instance, in James, of a man's faith being seen as right or just before the audience of men. Right, so on all of these words, this is a good example of not taking the definition I've given you in your notes and just automatically plugging it into that English word every time you find it in your Bible. Right, let each context define and describe the words as they are. Don't make the word study error of, hey, I defined this word and it's defined this way for all time and now I'm going to apply that everywhere. You will make mincemeat of your Bible. Just like if we did that in the English language. We don't take one definition of a word and make it work across the board. The word board, for instance, does not mean in that sentence a plank, (laughs) right? You can have a diving board, usually made of fiberglass, an elder board made of who knows what. (laughs) Amen, Chris. (laughs) I, I, I suppose that amen was hypothetically out there somewhere about some elder boards, some places. Thank you, appreciate that. I like this interactive equipping hour thing. So justification in this context, in a soteriological discussion, we mean the justification of a sinner before God. That is, God's declaring a sinner to be righteous. It is the positive imputation that we just talked about. God declares sinners righteous based on the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Sinners are reckoned by God to have fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements and to have never broken any of His commands. That is, God justifies. You think about when you try to justify yourself. What are you doing? You're you're making excuses to vindicate your character before some audience. God justifying sinners is putting sinners before the audience of heaven, God's own courtroom, and saying, this one, just. This one, righteous. And I'm sure Zach Can is going to fix this in the Doe language. But in the English language, it's unfortunate that the word group, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, for just and righteous, is just one word. 
We've sort of divided it out in English. So just and righteous don't sound like each other. But really, justified, righteousified are, are the ideas coming out of one word group. You're going to fix that, right, Zach? Sure. Okay, great, excellent. You have an opportunity. <laughs> and we've sort of lost that opportunity in the English language. So sometimes in, in passages that speak of justice or just or justification or righteous, being declared righteous, uh, we miss the, the reality that this is all one word group and one idea. Listen to Romans 4, 5. To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, and here's the contrast, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly, that man's faith is credited as righteousness. What is God doing in justification? We talked about this with the problem of Proverbs 17, 15 last week. God is declaring the ungodly to be righteous. Look, that is, a, that is a staggering, shocking, unfair thing. And it is our only hope. And God says that is the way he saves sinners. Sinners could be saved in no other way. And God gets to be the justifier of the ungodly and still maintain his reputation by fully punishing sin and by letting the sinner who believes go free. Really an amazing statement. Look down at Romans 3. Now, apart from law, God's righteousness has been manifested, witnessed by the law and the prophets. This righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Messiah. For all those who believe, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Again, our, nearly the whole dictionary of soteriological words shows up in three, Romans 3, 21 to 25. But justification as a gift by His grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus. God declares sinners to be righteous. That leads us to mercy. Mercy is sort of the flip side of the coin of grace. Grace is said to be getting positively what you don't deserve. Mercy can be seen as the flip side of that, not getting what you do deserve. It comes from a word which has at its base the idea of pity. God sees somebody in a pitiable state. And the reality of our pitiable state under sin is that we're culpable. We're culpably pitiable. We are the perpetrators, and we've gotten ourselves in a mess. And God looks upon our pitiable state with mercy, not giving us what we deserve. We saw this in Titus 3, verse 5. God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness. <laughs> he saved us according to His mercy. His mercy. Perseverance is the reality that those whom God regenerates will persevere to the end and be glorified. We've already seen this in the unbreakable chain of salvation in Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we see this as well in Philippians 6. Uh, excuse me, there is no Philippians 6. We just went off the map. Philippians 1, 6, I'm confident of this very thing, that God who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus what God starts, He finishes. 
And when it comes to salvation, what God begins, if God saves you, who is there that could unsave you? Right? Who could bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who then could condemn? Nobody who gets saved then gets unsaved. Now, that leads us to some questions that will be a future equipping hour lecture. What is the relationship between perseverance, preservation, and apostasy? Apostasy is the very real New Testament doctrine that some people walk away from Christ. And we find out that those who do walk away from Christ, even if they have tasted of the heavenly gifts, even if they have walked and talked and looked to the rest of us like wheat when they were chaff, even if it takes the, the angels to separate them out at the judgment, God knows the heart. And many who profess faith in Christ walk away and are damned. Apostasy is real. And you in this room perhaps have known those who seem to really love Christ one day and later on have no interest whatsoever. How does that relate to perseverance? <laughs> that those who get saved make it to the end. Uh, that is, the truly saved always make it. How does the doctrine of perseverance relate to preservation? Persevere is what we Christians do. We persevere to the end, true Christians. Preservation is God's holding us in His hand and never letting us go. No one can snatch Jesus' precious ones out of His hand. Not Satan, not demons, not the world, not your sin. If you are truly in Christ, you are truly His forever. That is perseverance. True believers persevere to the end. Predestination. This is God's election of some to salvation with a time stamp. You see that in the word, predestin. The destiny of some was predone. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of His will, according to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Predestination is in the Bible. I remember having to grapple with this. Uh, I remember having read parts of the Bible and having believed the gospel and having truly been saved, but disbelieving predestination, because that was a totally different system of theology that some theologian somewhere had, uh, you know, imported into the Bible, until there it is in my Bible. <laughs> I remember being confronted with Ephesians 1 as a senior in high school and then going off to Bible college and then seeing it so many other places in my Bible. If you already believe in predestination, if you've already grappled with the implications of predestination, you, you perhaps know what it is like to have come to that doctrine, be shocked by that doctrine, maybe be offended by that doctrine, and then be so comforted by that doctrine. <laughs> There is a sense of being born again again. Now, some of you believed the gospel, and from day one of belief in the gospel, you knew this was all of God, <laughs> and that if he hadn't looked down on me in mercy and kindness and initiated this whole thing, I never would have come. Whether you realized it at, at first or not in salvation, that was always your story. The truth of Scripture is that God loved his own before time began, before they were born, before they sinned, 
And we see this love of God when we were at our worst, when we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we could not choose for God, God chose his own. God set forth the destiny of his own before time began. This takes the doctrine of salvation just totally out of the hands of sinners in terms of their ability to initiate, long for, look for, create, bring about. The reality is no one seeks after God. Romans 3. And God in his kindness saves sinners anyway. If God hadn't planned it, it wouldn't happen. God did plan it, and we are here. We'll spend more time in a future soteriology lecture on the doctrines of election, predestination, and really what we'll call the God-centeredness of salvation. Propitiation. Here's that good college word we referred to earlier. Propitiation. We don't use this word uh, very often in the English language anymore. It's sort of gone out of style, a little bit archaic. And, and sometimes the, the thought is, well, it's in the Bible and nobody knows what it means. Shouldn't we use a different word? Maybe. Maybe. A lot of English translations have reworded the word propitiation, which shows up four times in the New Testament, as something like sacrifice of atonement. That's okay. Um, I, I like keeping the word propitiation because it's startling and you have to go look it up and it has a very particular meaning. Propitiation simply means satisfaction of divine wrath by a substitute. Satisfaction of divine wrath by a substitute. There are words that come from the same root word we still sometimes use in the English language. Uh, if, if you want to make somebody propitious towards you, I mean, somebody's angry and you did something to ameliorate their anger. Uh, you, 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 you did something, gave some gift to have them cool their jets. If somebody is propitious towards you, they were angry and now they're not. To propitiate means to do something to settle the anger of someone who's angry at you. But the biblical doctrine of propitiation is rooted right in substitutionary atonement. God is the one who provides the sacrifice of atonement that propitiates his own wrath. Here's the great news of the gospel. You could bring nothing to God of your filthy rags. You could bring nothing to God in your bloody hands that would propitiate his wrath against you. Everything you've ever done, Romans 2 uh, says, is like throwing more water behind the dam of God's wrath that will one day be breached, unleashed upon you. Our activities towards God only increase his anger against us. It's all we can bring to the table. But God has propitiated his own wrath. He has satisfied his own anger by a substitute. And so the word group behind propitiation in your Old Testament is all over the place. The book of Leviticus is full of it and often translated with the word atonement or a sacrifice of atonement, to make atonement. And in the New Testament, we get this very technical word with a very singular meaning, a satisfaction of divine wrath by a substitute. It shows up four times. Now look at Romans chapter 3. In this very dense section where all these vocabulary words just sort of pile on each other, 
Apart from law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being righteousified, <laughs> being declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. God put him on display, hanging in the air between heaven and earth as a propitiation, a satisfaction of his own wrath by an innocent substitute. And notice how this is described, a propitiation in his blood. It took the death of Christ, it took the blood of Christ to propitiate God's anger, to make God propitious towards us, to make him happy with us and not angry with us. This is an infinitely costly thing God has done in propitiation. This satisfaction of divine wrath by a substitute. By the way, I'm not a fan of the New World Translation. That's the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. When the Jehovah's Witnesses show up your, at your door and you've got the, the Yoda and the Padawan Learner you know, they show up, you got the teacher and there's someone who's there with them to kind of listen to see how this goes at your door. And, and I love having them turn in, in their so-called translation. It's not really a translation. They basically took an English Bible and erased all the references to the deity of Christ. <laughs> they missed a few. You can trick them. It's kind of fun. Um, but I love having them turn in their new world so-called translation to Romans 3.25. Because their version actually doesn't say justified. It says declared righteous. And the last time I had this conversation with the Jehovah's Witness at the door, and I said, hey, what, what, about, what do you do with Romans 3.25? We turned there, and, and the, the, uh, the Jedi master read it. Um, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And I'm just thinking, wow, she just preached the gospel to herself and her Padawan learner. This is awesome. I don't have to say anything else. And then she went on to say, now you have to understand the Greek word behind declared righteous actually means you have to try really hard, as hard as you can, and then God makes up the difference. Oh, really? Um, do you mean, and I, I mean, this was at my front door and my laptop bag was literally by the front door and I had my Greek New Testament and I said, oh, do you mean this Greek word? <laughs> and her eyes were like this and she said, Oh, I can't read Greek. I said, I knew that already when you misdefined the word. <laughs> and then I turned to the little Padawan learner and I said, are you comfortable with what's happening here? This person who has brought you to my door and all my neighbor's doors who need to know how to get to heaven, and she's telling, trying to tell me and trying to tell all of my neighbors that to get to heaven, you have to try really hard and let God make up the difference. When your Bible and my Bible and the Greek New Testament all affirm that that only happens by grace through faith in a propitious sacrifice that God himself provides where he declares the sinner righteous, not on the basis of works. And you know, she was willing to lie about Greek to try to win an argument. Are you comfortable with this? Oh, we need to go. Please come here. And they left. And the conversation was over. What a tragedy that is. From the one verse really well translated. I kind of want to borrow that translation for our English text. Reconciliation. 
Reconciliation is the making of peace between parties who are at enmity with each other. I'll just refer to uh, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified, therefore having been declared righteous, we have peace. Now, there's a participle there that should be translated as a, a, a past perfect, that is, or a present perfect. Having been justified, the idea is we were declared righteous in the past, that has continuing results into the present, but now in the present, we presently possess peace with God. This is something we have. Do you understand that, believer? Having been declared righteous, you now possess peace with God. What's implied in that? Before you were declared before you were declared righteous, no peace, war, enmity. God himself has made the terms of peace where you could do no such thing. In your sin, you were only ever at enmity with God, and God has declared peace by declaring you righteous. This is reconciliation. Warring parties now made friends. This is a staggering reality. Redemption. Redemption is a word that means the purchase of a slave for a price. To redeem something means an exchange has been made. There's a price paid and someone has been won. Someone has been bought or purchased. It was used often in the slave markets. Someone would go and with money redeem somebody out of the slave market for their own purposes. God has rescued sinners from slavery to sin, from slavery to corruption, from slavery to death by paying the price of His own Son. Back to Romans 3 in this compilation of our vocabulary. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption. We were declared righteous as a gift by His grace, a compound way to say grace upon grace, through the redemption purchased out of the slave market with a price. And then regeneration. Regeneration simply means new birth. This is new birth accomplished by the Holy Spirit. This is the conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus in John 3. Don't be surprised. You can't get into the kingdom unless you're born again. Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel. You're top of the heap. You're a Pharisee, and you do not have what it takes. You've been religious your whole life, and you must be born again. Start over. (laughs) Sometimes your best just isn't good enough. (laughs) You've got to be born again. I I love on birthdays to tell people, thanks for being born. <laughs> What's the response to that? Well, uh, you're welcome. Wait, I, I didn't have much to do with that. And to believers, I love to follow that up with saying, thanks for being born again too. Yeah, oh, I, didn't, I guess I didn't have much to do with that one either. <laughs> That's the point of the illustration Jesus is using. <laughs> Can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born? No, we're talking about something impossible. We're talking about new birth by the Holy Spirit, and you can't get to heaven without it. New birth is a supernatural work initiated by God, performed by the Holy Spirit, and it has results. When you're born, you live. When you're a newborn, you live in that new birth reality. New birth brings about new life. Repentance. 
Repentance is literally a change of mind with an accompanying series of actions. Uh, To repent at the point of salvation is to turn from sin to Christ. It, It is to turn from worthless idols to the true and living God. To repent means to turn my life from living for me to living for God. It is a 180 degree change. 2 Peter 3.9 gives us repentance. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do you see in that verse that repentance and perishing are opposites? That is, if you don't repent, you will perish. You can't have some version of salvation without repentance. There was a brand of salvation. I was taught in Bible school that gave you your get out of hell free card without repentance. In fact, I was actually taught in the classroom, in a theological classroom, repentance has no part of salvation. Repentance is a work you do. And if you say people have to be, have to repent to go to heaven, you're adding works to salvation. Therefore, it's a false gospel. That's a bunch of malarkey. (laughs) Without repentance, there is no salvation. Without repentance, there is perishing. Repentance is actually the flip side of faith. Faith is not mental assent to the fact that Jesus is true. Faith is positively surrendering to Christ. Repentance is the negative side of turning away from all that other stuff to believe in and surrender to Christ. You cannot have salvation without repentance. Salvation, that is the word for salvation in a big sense we've been talking about. Last week we mentioned that salvation is described as being past, present, and future. Believers have been saved, Ephesians 2.5. Believers are being saved, 2 Corinthians 2.15. And believers will be saved, 1 Peter 1.5. The doctrine of salvation, past, present, and future is all described in Scripture. We can also talk about being saved by God, from God, unto God. The word salvation just simply means rescue. Sanctification. This is another one of those words that sort of hides from us. Uh, Sanctified and holy are the same word group. Holy just means different. In terms of God's holiness, fundamentally it means He's different than anything created. In terms of God's moral holiness, it means He's separated from anything evil. In terms of God's people, He set them apart as holy Um, to be different, to be peculiar, and they are to pursue a moral separation by holiness. Believers in Jesus Christ are called saints, same word group, set apart ones, holy ones. And so when we talk about sanctification, same word group, we we probably just ought to think like set apartification. The sanctification has two aspects to it. There's a positional and a practical sanctification. Positional sanctification just means once and for all time, you are Christ's. You belong to Him. You're set apart for God. You're set apart by God. You are set apart for God, unto God. That's what it means to be a Christian, a saint, a set apart one. That is positional sanctification. Uh, Ephesians 2.6 gives us this positional sanctification. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He bestowed on us in the Beloved. God set us apart unto Himself. 
But I think most often when we hear the word sanctification as Christians, we mean that practical sanctification or progressive sanctification, that process where being transformed, 2 Corinthians 3.18, by the Lord who is the Spirit, from one glory to another. There is no justification without the progress of sanctification. Everyone who is born again by the Spirit is also progressively transformed by that same Spirit to look more and more like Jesus. That is the doctrine of sanctification. In eternity future, we will, of course, be completely and totally sanctified, set apart, and conformed to the image of Christ. Spirit baptism is the work of the Spirit to place believers into Christ and into the church. You have a couple of references there. You can see that in your notes. John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize by the Holy Spirit. That is an immersion into Christ as a work of the Spirit. He places you in Christ and He places you in the body of Christ. And that leads us to the last word here in our vocabulary list, union, union with Christ. If you look at the book of Ephesians, the phrases in Him, in Christ, in the Lord, in the Spirit occur some 35 times. This is a significant doctrine in, at the pen of the Apostle Paul and in the New Testament. In Christness, we might call it. It is your new identity, it is your new location, it is what defines and describes the Christian life. Are you in Christ? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then you see this phrase over and over again, God chose us in Him. In Him we have redemption, etc., all the way through the book of Ephesians. To be in Christ means our identity is in Him. We are unified with Him. We have a mystical bond with Him. God has placed us and incorporated us into Christ. That means something for us individually, but it also means something significant for us collectively. We are collectively immersed, spirit-baptized, into the body of Christ, and Christ is the head, and we are all members one of another. Thank you for bearing with me this morning and reading the dictionary, one of my personally favorite activities, and uh, we'll close, be dismissed, regather for main service in a few moments. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for these facets that we get to look at and the glorious diamond of your saving of sinners. What a refreshment for our souls to think again at all the magnificent things you have done for us. May we sing of these things at the top of our lungs. May we sing with our hearts and mean every word. May we go out of this place filled with your word, singing with our lives all this week because of what you have done on our behalf. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.